And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And as you turn there, of course, you are uh, you know that we have been working through these last few months through the vision of our church, and we are very near the end. Lord willing, uh, next Sunday will be the last uh, Sunday for our vision series. And you know what we're doing in this vision series is each week we're taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of our vision as a church. And that vision is very straightforward. It is to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal. Not just here, we believe it can also reach out to the uttermost ends of the earth. And it is on this last of these subjects of cultural renewal that we've been focusing on these last few weeks. We've seen that we as God's people are called to engage our culture, to understand our culture, to shape our culture. And one of the key areas in which we engage our culture is in the relationship that we have as Christians to the civil authority, that is to the government or the civil magistrate. Now I have to admit, I almost did not include this sermon uh, in this series. It's always been a part of the series, you know, as we preach through the vision series every four or five years or so. But I had actually already preached on this very subject about a year ago when we were dealing with all these issues of what should we do in relation to the pandemic? Are we required to obey what the civil magistrate is requiring us to do with lockdowns and all that other stuff? And so I really was just going to say, you know what, I preached on this a year ago, just look it up online. But then I thought, you know what, it's the integrity of the whole series. There are a number of new folks in the church that have not heard this, so uh, I've decided we're going to keep it in here. So apologies to those of you who have good enough memories to remember uh, a year ago what we talked about. Uh, if that's the case, and I hope it will be of some use to you as you hear it again. And for those uh, for whom it's new, this is a very, very key and vital area for us as Christians. How do we relate to the civil authority that God has placed over us? Of course, last week was the 4th of July, a wonderful opportunity to remember that we live in a great country. But it was also interesting that it fell on Sunday. And you'll recall that we said last Lord's Day that our emphasis and our focus is on the one who has ultimate authority over us, over God. We would not be singing uh, patriotic songs in a worship service. We were here to worship God, not to exalt our country. Now, does that mean, does that mean that our country, that there is no way that we should relate to our country in a way in which we submit or that we obey, this brings up a very important question. If our ultimate allegiance is to God and and to his Christ, how do we as Christians then relate to this country and to the government of it? Are we to submit? And if we do submit to the government, does the very submission to the civil magistrate mean that we are failing to submit to God? There are some Christians. That would claim that that is, in fact, the case. And if we do submit, are there ever any legitimate grounds for disobedience? There are some Christians who would say that there are not. And one other question that perhaps we can answer, one that I've been hearing uh, at least since the presidency of George Bush, you hear people say stuff like, well, Bush is not my president. And then it was from another side, Obama is not my president. Well, Trump is not my president. Well, Biden is not my president. Can we say that? Is that legitimate? These are all the questions that Romans 13, 1 through 7 will answer for us. So let's turn now to the word of God. 
And let's hear what the infallible word has to say. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, as we turn to this passage, which is a seminal passage in Scripture and one of those clearest and most direct in, uh, in terms of talking about the civil magistrate, there are three things that I want us to learn from this text. These are the authority from God, our submission to God, and success through God. Those are our three points. Authority from God, submission to God, and success through God. So let's take a look at the very first of those points, authority from God. And the one key truth that should leap out to you from the very beginning as we read this text is that God is the ultimate authority over all of his creation. There are other authorities. We can talk about the civil authority. We can talk about scriptural authority of the church. We can talk about parental authority. But every other authority derives its authority from God. We see that in verse 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So this is something that is very, very important for our understanding and how we think about all authorities, civil and otherwise, and that is that there is no authority that exists outside of God's appointment. Whether we are talking about the civil, the spiritual, parental authority, whatever the case may be, rulers and police, teachers, parents, elders, all of their authority is a derivative authority. Jesus Christ is the only one who has non-derivative authority. That means authority that inheres in and of himself. But the church, the state, and all others who have authority have real authority, but it's a derivative authority. It finds its basis in the authority that God has. God loans his authority, as it were, transfers that authority within rather limited spheres to these different authorities. And so narrowing it down to our subject at hand, which is the state, the civil government, it's important to recognize that the state derives its authority from God. That's a message that so desperately needs to be heard today. You remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate, 
He was on trial in John 19, verse 10. We read, surely, Pilate said, you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you. You would have no authority over me, Jesus replied, if it had not been granted you from above. This is something that the civil magistrate needs to know. Those who serve in any capacity under the authority structures of the state, our police officers, our town council, our new mayor, our governor, our state legislature, our congressmen and women, our president and his cabinet, and all the others need to understand that God is the ultimate authority. The church must speak this with a clear and distinct voice. God is the ultimate authority. Government has real authority, but it is a subordinate authority that is to submit to God's Authority. It is something that our government needs to hear. One of the wonderful things about living in this country is that our founding documents, like the Constitution, recognize that the authority of the civil magistrate ultimately inheres in the authority of God. And there have been attempts again and again and again as of late to remove that and to make it seem as if government itself is the final arbiter and as, as, as if the authority resides in the government, as if our rights came from government. So this is a very important message that the church, one sphere of God's authority, has to speak truth to the other sphere and remind them, those in the state, your authority is real, but it is a derivative authority. God is the ultimate authority over you. In fact, Paul makes that clear again and again. He refers to the state, to the civil magistrate as God's servant, whose purpose is to carry out God's sovereign purposes. Twice in verse four, he refers to the civil magistrate as God's servant. Verse 6, he refers to them as ministers of God, where the word literally means the workers of God, the one who carries out God's work. I like the way the, the, the Revised English Bible translates this. It uses the word agent. Even though the word agent does not exist in the Bible, that does convey the idea. These are those who have been commissioned by God to carry out his particular mission. And so what we see there in verses 4 through 6, it's very clear that the civil magistrate is meant to render his service to God. He is to carry out God's purposes, and he is accountable to God. This is, again, a very important message that we need to understand both ourselves as citizens and as Christians and for those who have the privilege and the responsibility to serve uh, in civil government. And it goes on further because Paul goes on to say in verse 4 that God's agent is authorized to only do a couple of things. He is to rule and he is to dispense temporal punishment and approval. Now, it's very important to recognize because the civil magistrate is God's agent and not his own, and he does not have unrestricted authority, then there is a limit to the authority of the government, and that limit has been set by God. Look at verse 3. It tells us that the uh, civil magistrate has been granted the power of the sword in order to restrain evil. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There we see the delimiting of the power and the authority, the scope of the authority of the civil magistrate. He has a very particular role, and that is to keep the peace, to restrain sin, to restrain wrongdoing. We also see in verse 6 a further role, that is the collection of taxes for the services that it provides. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So there is a legitimate role for the civil government to raise taxes and to collect taxes in order to carry out these services. But what really stands out is just how very limited, in a day in which the scope of not just our government here in the United States, but all throughout the world, this idea that not only do they have authority inherent to themselves, but the idea that their authority and the scope of what they can do and where they can intrude in our lives gets broader and broader and wider and wider and deeper and deeper, the scripture makes very clear and delimits them to these activities. In fact, when we see there in verse 4 that it says, he is God's servant for your good, Paul is making clear that there is an overall limited role of the civil magistrate. The state is there to promote our good, our welfare, but it's not the government's role, for example, to raise your children or to fix your mistakes or to bail out your business, all these sorts of things that we've been seeing over the last, uh, I hate to say, almost now a century. That is not what the government is authorized to do. So that's the very first thing I want you to see as we look at this text and we look at our very first point, authority from God, as a recognition that all authority, including the civil magistrate, derives its authority from God. That means that they are to serve God. They are to stay within God's defined purpose. And he's defined that purpose primarily to make sure that there is public peace and order, the idea of law and order, and not all these other things that government has been doing. Now, if that is the role of the government, we should now ask, what is our role? How do we relate to government? And that's my second point, submission to God. We've seen authority from God. Now we're going to look at submission to God. And Paul makes equally clear that we are to submit to the civil authority. He says, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 5, one must be in subjection. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. So we do owe our government, we do are to submit to them, but we submit to them because God has appointed them as authority over us. That's an important point to recognize. Our submission to the civil authority is, in fact, our submission to God's rule. And that's why in verse 5, he tells us that we ought to submit not just in order to avoid punishment, but also for the sake of conscience. And you might say, what does that mean? It means that very often the reason we obey is because we're afraid that we're going to get caught and we're going to get punished. So it tells us we're supposed to drive and we're only supposed to go 55 miles an hour on this road. And the reason that we stick to 55 is because we're afraid of being ticketed. We're afraid of being of paying a fine. But Paul is saying, even if there's no chance that the police will ever catch you, 
There's no cops on that road and there's no electronic uh, devices. We ought to obey simply out of conscience because we recognize God has placed that civil authority over us for our good. And so we are called then to submit to that civil authority. In fact, he says in verse 2 that to resist that authority is in fact to resist God himself. And once we begin to understand it, that's the underlying principle that we're going to talk about some exceptions to that in a moment. But once we begin to understand that that is the underlying principle for us, the civil magistrate, his underlying principle is to recognize that his authority comes from God and he is to himself submit to God and to stick to his defined roles. Our underlying message that we get from Romans 13 is that then we are to submit to that civil authority as if we are submitting to God himself, because God has placed him over us for our good. And so there, in order to restrain our sinfulness, we submit. And once we grab a hold of that, a lot of things begin to fall into place. It begins to change the way we think and how we ought to approach government. So, for example, we think of our Amish brothers and sisters who believe that the only way way that you can be totally submissive to God is to in no way submit to the civil authority. But this passage makes clear that that is not the case at all. We can be in submission to the civil authority, and in so doing, we are, in fact, fulfilling our obligation to submit to God. So that's an important point for us to be able to wrap our heads and our hands around. Now, with that, let's get specific. How is it that we are to submit? What does it mean when we talk about submission? And verses 3 through 4 tells us that the way in which we primarily submit is by doing what is right, by doing what is lawful. You have nothing to fear if you do what is right and what is lawful. So Paul tells us. He elaborates further in verse 7. He says that we're to pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In short, what Paul is telling us is that if we fulfill our just obligations, we do have obligations, uh, we are to do that both in material obligation, uh, obligations and those in regard to respect and honor. So we do have obligations, and we are to fulfill them. Uh, Brandon earlier read from the text in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus said to the Pharisees, Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And as we read, it said that Jesus said to them, Whose likeness in the inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus replied to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What Jesus is saying very clearly is that we are to render what is due, that we are to pay what you owe, that you are to fulfill your obligations, whether those be material, whether those be in regard to respect or honor. The Pharisees had rightly replied in verse 16 that the image and inscription on the coin showed that it belonged to Caesar. So the irresistible logic of Jesus' reply was, if the coin already belongs to Caesar, give it back to him then. So in order for us to submit, we have to begin with the understanding that we do owe an obligation to the civil authority. After all, think about it. If we are to accept the law and order that the civil authorities should provide, and if we are to accept all the other amenities that come from the state, then we have no right to seek to escape those obligations that we owe to the state in order to make those things possible. I know some of you have heard this before, but it reminds me of that taxpayer whose conscience was stricken, and so he wrote to the IRS 
Dear sirs, my conscience bothered me. Here is the $175 which I owe in back taxes. And then he followed up with a P.S. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send you the rest. The idea, of course, is we do owe the civil magistrate an obligation. Those can be material, like in taxes. Those can be honor and reverence. Uh, That, for example, answers the question when we go around and we say, Mr. X, or someday Mrs. X, is not my president. Well, yes, he is. And if he is in that position, we may disagree with his policies. We may not care for the direction in which he is leading the government, but he is in that office, and we are to uh, offer what we owe, which is honor and respect. And, yes, the material obligations of things like taxes. Now, having laid that as the general principle that we are to submit as if we are to submitting to God because God has placed them over us, and that means that we have an obligation both materially and in terms of honor. There are some implications to this that I want us to unfold. What does this mean in day-to-day life? Well, first of all, it means that Christians, Christians are not Republicans, nor are they Democrats, nor are they even independents. This idea that we equate, well, Christians must be then Republicans. That's what you hear if you're in the evangelical world. If you're in the mainline world, and I have had a foot in each and several times, then by nature you must be Democrats. And the reality is you're none of these. We're not even independents. We are Christians, which means that we are under the rule of Christ. We belong to the kingdom of God. That is where our allegiance lies. Now, I'm not telling you that you can't be involved with one party or another and that you can't be involved uh, in, in um, our civic responsibilities. On the contrary, I would say we are to be engaged in the civic process. But the point here, when we talk about submission, is that we are to support and to submit to the civil authority regardless of what party is in office. Our submission does not depend on who is in office. We can work and must work with whomever God has placed over us in order to bring glory to God. Uh, Same token, we should not give anyone a free pass just because they hold to particular things that we go for. We have to hold all of them accountable to a godly rule. So that's the first implication of what this means. We are not beholden. Christians are not defined by any party. We are Christians first and foremost. A second implication that's, uh, that leaps out is that Paul is calling us to operate within our political system, whatever that system is. The things that Jesus said about rendering unto Caesar, the things that Paul says in this passage, both of these things were not said under a liberal democracy like the ones that we enjoy in the West. These were things that were said when Caesar, a tyrant, was in charge. And so Paul and Jesus both are very clear here. Regardless of the system, we are to submit. A third implication is that even as we submit to them, we are to pray for those civil authorities and we are to seek their well-being. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So there is Paul telling us that the goal is a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, we want tranquility. 
peace, law and order. Why? So that we can be godly. You'll often hear that in my prayer when we pray for uh, um, the civil magistrate. And you'll hear me uh, often pray for the well-being and for the protection of those who are in office, whether I agree or disagree with their general direction which they take. We pray for them, and we pray that there would be peace so that the gospel may go forward unhindered, that we can focus on those things to which we're called to. Justin Martyr, the second century uh, theologian and apologist who got the name Justin Martyr because he was uh, living under uh, a cruel tyrant who ended up martyring him. He once wrote, Christian intercession for the health of the state does not depend upon receiving any temporal benefits from the state. I think that's well said. Tertullian, one of his uh, near contemporaries, wrote, We constantly pray for all emperors, that they may have a long life, a secure empire, a safe center of governance, adequate defense, a faithful senate, a well-instructed people, a quiet state, whatever Caesar would wish for himself in his public and private capacity. And I think that is about as good of a summary of the things that we can be praying for for the civil magistrate, but we are called to pray for the civil authorities. So those are just some of the implications of what it means to submit. But it now does bring up a very important topic, because even though while God himself never makes any mistakes in how he exercises his authority, the civil magistrate clearly does make mistakes. So what are we to do when that happens? Are we to never disobey the magistrate? Is our submission to him total? The answer is very simply this. Everything that the civil magistrate does ultimately has to do with God. We've already seen that because his authority, his whole reason for being, and the limits of his authority, all those are derived from God and set by God. So the civil magistrate is to be doing things in accord with the word of God. But if the civil magistrate requires, and now listen to that answer, that, that, that wording is very specific. If the civil magistrate requires something of you that is contrary to the law of God, then and only then are you justified in opposing it. You remember the words in Acts 5.29 where Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. If the civil magistrate is requiring of you something that is contrary to the law of God, then you are justified in opposing it. But if what the civil magistrate requires is not contrary, then you are to submit in obedience. Let's unpack that. Let's see what that means. And let me use some specific examples. And mind you, I realize that even with these examples that I'm going to use, I'm going to ask for charity because there may be some Christians who actually might say, we're thinking the exact opposite of the example you use. Listen to the principle. It's the principle that I want you to hear here. What does it mean then that we are justified in opposing certain things at certain times? Well, first of all, just because a policy is unpopular does not mean that we can disobey. Just because it's unpopular. So, for example, no one likes to pay taxes. That's unpopular, but we're called to do so, as we saw uh, in in verse 6. But we're called to do so even if we think that they're too high. That does not mean that you have to like it. And it does not mean that you can't say anything about it. You can oppose the civil authority legitimately. 
In other words, in our country, you can write to your congressman, you can demonstrate legally, you can do all those things, but you're not free to disobey just because it's an unpopular and something that you don't like. A second implication as we think this through is that if the civil magistrate does require something of us that actually is contrary to the law of God, but the key word here is require, that's when you're justified in opposing it and in disobeying. So think back to the days before the Civil War when uh, we still had the abominable practice of slavery in this country. And one of the things in many of the states is it was illegal to teach blacks to read or to write. Now, I can go on about uh, all the attempts today to limit uh, the ability of people to read and to understand and to think because all those are ways that you keep control. And that's what they were doing back then. Uh, They didn't want to teach blacks to read or write. That would give them uh, greater uh, understanding, and this was a way of controlling the black population. In the uh, Virginia Criminal Code of 1847, it literally said, any white person who shall assemble with slaves or free Negroes for the purpose of instructing them to read or write shall be punished by confinement in the jail and by fine. Well, there was this woman called Margaret Douglas. She lived in Norfolk. She had once been a slaveholder, but she had seen the light and come to the Lord, and she had let all her slaves go. And she continued to teach blacks, even though it was against the law, she continued to teach them in Sunday school how to read or write. And because of that, she was arrested and she was imprisoned. But she was right in defying that law because that law was requiring her to do something that was morally wrong. An obvious example of that today is what we've seen with these lockdowns where in some states, not in all, there have been things that we didn't like about the lockdowns and the pandemic. Not all of it was illegal, but in some states, there actually have been measures that have been passed that prohibited worship. And those churches would said, no, we will not, not worship because you have said so. We're right to stand up against it. So that's an important principle for us to recognize. And it applies not just to the civil magistrate, but to all other subordinate authorities. It could happen in your workplace, for example, if your boss comes to you. This has actually happened to me uh, before being here in this church. But yeah, your boss comes to you and asks you to do something unethical for the company. Uh, he asks you to lie or he asks you to change, uh, you know, to, uh, to rip off a customer or a client or in some way uh, do something that is wrong, you have to resist that command, that authority, because what they're asking you to do is in and of itself wrong. One further point to say on that, even as you disobey what is unlawful, your opposition itself has to be in submission to God's law. Right? The old adage, two, right, uh, two wrongs do not make a right. So if you are resisting the civil magistrate, you can't, for example, murder someone in order to carry that, you know, to oppose a civil magistrate. Right? Just, we get that clear. Uh, you are to submit, but if he asks you to do something that's, that's contrary to God's law, you can disobey, but your very disobedience itself cannot violate God's law. Okay, and let's then move on to uh, another implication of this. What if the civil magistrate does not require you to do something contrary to God's law? What if he only allows it? And there is a distinction to be made. What if the person, the, the, the state only allows it but does not require it? In a situation like that, we should oppose legally this policy that is wrong in every way but not by our own disobedience to it. And what do I mean by that? Let's take, for example, 
um, abortion. Abortion is wrong. It is a violation of the Sixth Commandment because it is, whether intentional or not, or whether the person understands what is happening or not, it is the killing, the murder of an unborn child. And so here in this country, abortion is legal. It is allowed, but it's not being forced on you. You are not being forced to have an abortion. Now, if you live in China, uh, some years ago, China, in order to control their population, implemented uh, the one-child policy. You can only have one child after that. All the children were aborted. Some 10 or so years ago, that became two children. And just this year, interestingly enough, they found out that they're declining rates of birth. And so they've now set it for three. We're thankful that the Chinese government has allowed that. It's still wrong to say that beyond that, the child must be aborted. So in those cases, compare the United States where abortion is allowed but not forced upon you and a country like China where at a certain point abortion is forced upon you. There is a very clear and distinct difference here. If you are a Christian uh, in China, then you must disobey and do everything possible to resist that illegal command to abort your child or to abort someone else's child. And I say that because if you're a doctor or a nurse and there's those situations, you are just as culpable if you're the one carrying it out. So um, you have to resist. But in this country, no one is forcing you to do so. So we must resist the civil magistrate legally. We must protest. We have to write to our congressmen. We have to continue putting pressure on the government to do away with this great and terrible evil in our land. But it does not give us, because we're not being forced to do it, it does not give us a right to then do things that are illegal, that bring us out of uh, obedience to the civil magistrate. So we can't go up blowing up abortion clinics or shooting abortion doctors. And that's not the, uh, the response that we should have. And think about it. There are many other wrongs in society. There are drugs, there's sexual immorality, there's worshiping of false gods. None of those things are yet being forced upon us. And the response in the New Testament to things of this nature is never one of disobedience or violence. It's always one of praying for the restraint of evil, proclaiming the gospel and the answer that comes to Christ. So it's important for us to recognize that we cannot arrogate to ourselves the power of the state to restrain evil. It is the power of the state that should punish the doctors who kill and murder, not us. So there's a distinction there between when we're being required to do something, then you may disobey, and when something is simply allowed, then you resist legally, but not with disobedience. Right? And one last thing to uh, mention in, re- in regards to, um, to this submission and when we obey and we don't obey. Do not confuse being wronged with being required to commit a wrong. We've already talked about when you are being required to commit something wrong. Do not confuse that with yourself being wronged. Just because you are being wronged does not give us then the freedom to do uh, to, to disobey or to do wrong ourselves. Think of all those numerous examples in the Old Testament. There's tons of them. You can read about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all the all the Gospels and Acts again and again. When the Christians are being persecuted, every one of those examples, the response, as I said earlier, was always one of prayer and proclaiming the gospel. It was not of them then responding with, um, uh, you know, leading troops against uh, the civil magistrate or anything of that nature. An example today is one I already referenced. What about when you are given ridiculously high taxes, usurious rates of taxation? 
That would be an example of us being wronged because we're being robbed at that point. But the civil authority in taxing us in this way is not requiring us to commit a wrong. We're not the ones who are stealing. We're the ones who are being robbed. So we can oppose that legitimately by, again, going through all the legal and and normal means for trying to change policy. But we're not to disobey by not paying. Again, compare that to what we said, like, you know, when you're being forced to do something like abortion, when you're being required to commit a wrong, only then are you justified in disobeying. So let's wrap up this section by simply being reminded the authority from God is given to the civil magistrate. The government's authority is completely derivative. And that means that they are to submit to God. But because they are put over us, we, our role is to submit to the government as if we're submitting to God. And once we understand that, that leads to an understanding of the proper role of government. And that leads us to having a proper expectation. And that, I think, leads to the last thing that I want to talk about, which is many people today, and that includes Christians, expect a whole lot more from the government than the government can ever legitimately offer, even if it tries. And that's our last point. Success through God. Success through God. We all want to succeed. We all want to prosper. We all want our country to go well. We all want our lives to go well. And more and more and more, Christians are looking at the country, the people are looking to the government for all the final answers. But the problem is that the government really can offer no final answer. There's no ultimate answer to our problems. They simply cannot do it. Generally, we tend to think of two different approaches that people take to government. On one hand, you've got those who call themselves liberal or progressive, and they believe that the civil state is needed in order to address broad and systemic problems. Progressives tend to stress corporate responsibility, the responsibility that we have as a group. Conservatives, on the others, on the other hand, tend to say that we need individuals who contribute to society. They tend to stress personal responsibility. Of course, we need both of these. But the interesting thing to recognize is that neither approach can solve all the universal problems in our society. And yet you see both conservatives and liberals expecting that somehow government will solve all these different things, and we see it again and again. I think one of the clearest examples, if we can think back uh, now some 16 years to when Katrina hit, and the expectation that there was that somehow the civil government could erase the damage that had been done by this storm. Even it got so ridiculous, some of you may remember, some people wondered, why didn't we, the government, stop the storm beforehand? I mean, when you get to that level of expectation, government begins to become idolatrous. We're seeing it with the pandemic. Whatever you might think of lockdowns or masks and all this other stuff, we have seen among some folks, some of them are Christians, this idea that somehow the government can solve the problems of viruses. There are things that we can do. There are measures perhaps that we can take and ought to take that's open for debate. But it's clear that for some folks, we simply are asking too much of our government. Of course, many people in government are more than happy to try to provide all the answers because that they believe that gives them more and more power. But as we can have seen in our text, there's a limit. There's a limit, and it's not just the limit that God has put over them. There, there's a limit because of what they're authorized to do, but there's also a limit to what even they can do. Even if they wanted to do other, 
we've already seen that they've been given the power of the sword in order to maintain law and order, but not much more beyond that. And so it's important that we have the proper perspective on government. And this is something that's a worldview shift. When we talk about cultural renewal as Christians, it begins with understanding and having this this shift in our minds. We have to recognize that the root cause of our problem, all our problems that we face individually and that we face corporately as a society, has at its root sin. Sin is the underlying problem. We've seen that God has put the civil magistrate in place in order to check our sinfulness, to keep that, to restrain that sinfulness. But all that said, restraining sinfulness is not the same as dealing with sin itself. Civil government cannot deal with the root of our problem, which is sin. So if the government can't fix it, to whom then do we turn? Is there no solution to the fundamental problem that faces the human race? And of course, yes, there is. And that answer is found in Christ. And that is why we, as Christians, as we think about the civil magistrate and we think about how we ought to relate to him, we can never forget that ultimately we stand in relationship to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who provides that ultimate answer. Jesus is the one who himself is under no subordinate authority. He is the ultimate authority. Remember what Jesus said as he rose into heaven in Matthew 28, 18, his last words to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some of the authority, all of the authority in heaven, on earth. The full scope of all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. That is to say that Jesus does not owe anything to anyone. We are the ones who owe him. We owe him obedience, but he himself does not owe anything. And yet, and yet this Jesus, in becoming a human being, when God took on human flesh... Jesus willingly identified himself with us, with humanity, and that meant that in so doing, he ended up doing what you and I are called to do. He rendered all the obedience that was owed both to God and man. And we've seen that there is obedience owed to man, to the civil magistrate, and Jesus rendered it perfectly. He perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly loved and served his neighbor. But even more so than that, out of his great love for us, He also rendered to God the debt that you and I owe God for our sin on the cross. His substitutionary death on the cross removes that penalty that we owe God for our own disobedience and for our failure to submit to God and to man. So Jesus, in becoming like us and becoming one of us, did what you and I are incapable of doing. And he did so with the express purpose of dealing with the root of our problem, which is sin itself. He didn't deal with the cosmetic issues out here, you know, just surface issues. He went right to the fundamental issue, the sin itself. Our civil government can do nothing but restrain evil. Put a law that says if you go faster than 55 or 65 or whatever the speed limit is, we're going to nail you for a fine of 250. And that fear keeps you then from speeding. All it can do is restrain with the power of the sword. But Jesus deals with our hearts. And that means that our ultimate confidence ultimately should be in Jesus Christ, not in government to solve all our ills. And both liberals and conservatives, Christians of all stripes, put way too much stock in politics. Evangelicals have fallen into that trap. 
liberal Christians have fallen into that trap because we expect the government to fix everything. You might remember in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, we read the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Here was was Satan offering Jesus power over the civil authorities so that Jesus could restrain all the evil of the world. I will give you all civil authority, Satan said. And you can restrain all the evil. Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus understood that true change could not be accomplished by taking the power of the state because the civil power has no authority to change hearts. But only Jesus, through his substitutionary life and death, through his Holy Spirit working in our heart to regenerate us and bring us into union with him so that that life and death becomes our life and death, only then can we hope to have a real change in our society as God changes our hearts through Jesus through the cross. That's where our hope is. The 5th century theologian Augustine once wrote, The coin does not know whose image it bears, but we are the coin of God, knowing the one whose image we bear. We are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin, as Caesar sought his coin. It is in this sense that he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar his coins, to God your very selves. Augustine understood that the denarius bore the, the image of Caesar, therefore it belonged to Caesar. But we bear the image of God, therefore we belong to him. Sadly, that image has been worn down because of our sin, and yet through Jesus Christ, he re-stamps us, makes us his, brings us back into the treasury as it were. So people of God, what have we learned? Yes, we should give all appropriate due to the civil government. It's their coins with their image, give it back to them. But ultimately, we are also to give God his coin, which is ourselves. We who have his very image imprinted on us so that we can give God his due. May he, through his Holy Spirit, enable us to do those very things. Let us pray.